0: Welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to a multi-Grammy winning New Orleans born and bred soul artist who has just released his biggest and best album called Watch the Sun on his own label, Morton Records. Over the course of 11 songs, all expertly written and produced, that deal with the complexities of love in all its forms, he marks the next chapter in a remarkable career that continues to bridge styles, traditions, and generations. I am, of course, talking about PJ Morton. PJ, welcome to the show, sir. How are you?
1: I am great. I'm even better after that intro. Thank you, Tex. I appreciate it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's what we like to do here at Text Talks. We like to make our guests feel comfortable. Uh, and I want to let you know that this is no small feat having you on this podcast today. The, literally, the entire Text Talks team is fangirling so hard about this interview right now. Oh, wow. And You know, the crazy thing is that, you know, you were scheduled to play at the Cape Town International Jazz Festival back in 2020, which was canceled literally a week before it was supposed to go down. And I feel like, PJ, we were so close. We were so close to doing this interview in person. So close. (laughs) But do you remember, you know, what you were in the middle of doing when the world essentially shut down? What began as a faraway outbreak in China.
1: There is growing concern at this hour over a possible outbreak of a mystery virus. Yes, I remember. And I was I was looking so forward to that trip. Um, it was actually going to be my birthday. I was playing the festival the day uh after my birthday and I was getting in the day before my birthday. So I was going to celebrate there. It was going to be my first time in Africa. I, I was just so excited. Um, but yes, I remember I was in South America with, with Maroon 5 actually. Um, and things started to get canceled in real time. I mean, we were there uh, in Argentina and we had a show the next day in Colombia. Um, the show in Colombia got canceled. And then, The Argentina show got canceled and then we had to try to rush back home to the States. Um, So I remember I remember it vividly uh, because I was so looking forward. I still had hope that, uh, you know, it might go back to normal and I could get to uh, get to to the to the festival. Uh, But it didn't happen. So we're still waiting. (laughs)
0: Yeah, hopefully you do get the opportunity to perform at the Cape Town International Jazz Festival, regardless. I mean, I know that you performed at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival last month. And I mean, you know, firstly, please educate me. Is it New Orleans or is it New Orleans? I want to get it (laughs) right.
1: So we locals say New Orleans. We never say liens. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, that's usually a dead giveaway. Yeah. So anything but New Orleans, and we 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 can't tell that you're that you're not from here.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. So New Orleans. Okay, that's what I'm gonna call it from now go. on. There you you have educated me. I mean that's that's where you you're from. It. That's your home. That's where you yes. are right now. Tell me about performing at that jazz festival this year and also releasing your most recent album there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was such a big like uh, feeling of anticipation with the festival being gone for the last few years um, it is a festival that kind of resets the city. Um, you know, it's it's one of those fests where, of course, many people come from around the world to go to it, but it's as mm-hmm. much a local festival. So we use it as a reset. And, um, and so to have it gone for so long and then, uh, you know, me performing there, it was kind of like... it it just felt like home it felt like home and like everybody needed it and uh it was so special and then yeah to have my album released that day just kind of marked it it just kind of made it all special it kind of put a a nice little bow on it we did a release party that night um, and we just had a blast it was good to be home in new orleans and enjoying that music outside with everybody it was beautiful
0: I also saw that you brought your dad out onto that Congo square stage explain to me how much of a beautiful moment that must have been
1: I used to sit for hours in my room making music just because that's what I Yeah. I mean, any chance I can get, I like to have, you know, if my dad's around, I like to have him come and sing. He's such a big reason I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, always been my biggest supporter. And so uh, what he means, first of all, to the city of New Orleans, um, he's He's been an anchor in the city for for many years, and full circle for his son now to be a leader in the city. So it was just kind of like a, you know, there's nothing more heartwarming than like a true family moment, and uh, we just were having fun up there, and I think everybody could feel that that energy that we that we were feeling.
0: You know, you mentioned being an anchor of New Orleans, and New Orleans is such a culturally rich city. I mean, among other things, it's the birthplace of jazz. It's where Mardi Gras is celebrated. As a kid growing up there, were you aware of how unique and how special the city was?
1: Uh, No, not really. Um, It was just what I was used to. Uh, I thought everybody danced in the streets, you know, on a Sunday (laughs) uh, after (laughs) church. I I just thought that that was normal. I thought King Cake was normal, you know. Um, It wasn't until... I I started to go around the world uh, that I realized wow this is like unique. It wasn't until I was an adult, well into being an adult, that I really started to appreciate the the uniqueness of the city. And uh, and now you can't you can't convince me otherwise. You know I, I moved back home some years ago, and um, I, re- I fully understand how special this city is. It has a little a little magic. Uh, to it. And um, I'm so grateful now that I was raised in this, even though I didn't realize then how special it was. I get it now.
0: Did you grow up close to the city?
1: Yes. uh, New Orleans East. I mean, I say everything is close to the city (laughs) in New Orleans. (laughs) Nothing's more than 15 minutes away for the most part. Uh, So I grew up in New Orleans East, which is probably about 15 minutes from like downtown. Mm
0: hmm. Mm -hmm. earlier we spoke about you bringing your father out onto stage with you so i want to talk about him a little bit because from what i can tell bishop paul morton is a phenomenal man he's a gospel singer he's a recording artist he's a pastor and as far as christian dom if that's even a word it
1: is a word actually yeah
0: (laughs) he literally started a reformation like a new sect of christianity called full gospel 20 years ago what was it like growing up with bishop morton as your father need you to move in this
1: place tonight i just need you to move in this place tonight. he's doing it right now i mean you know i i could feel how impactful my father was at a certain age i could tell that a lot of people listened to him and a lot of people followed him and uh it always made me proud and then as a singer as just as a, a creative altogether he always amazed me with his voice um, and so, you know, I felt honored. I don't know if I, I, I understood all sides of it. Um, uh, but I understood the importance, you know, of, of being a son. I, I tried to never embarrass him, you know, I tried to be a good kid as far as, as, as far as I could. And, uh, but it, it you know, there was some pressure there as well. Um, uh, when it was time to do my own thing, um, uh, there was like a big shadow because of, how, how much and how impactful he had been in his life. So uh, those were some big shoes to fill as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So you started out playing piano, then organ, then singing, and then writing. Mm-hmm. And all of this was rooted in the church, right? Especially with your upbringing. Yeah. But talk to me about gospel being the foundation for you because it's so ingrained in your musical DNA and in your expression.
1: Yeah, well, it's really it's really the first music I heard. I mean, it was the first music that touched me um, where I felt a, a connection to it. I, that's where I understood that music is is spiritual. It can literally, you know, get to your heart. Um, and so uh, when I think of connection and when I think of trying to, you know, write a song that that connects to people and that has an impact on someone, um, I always kind of go back to my roots because that's the first music that that touched me. Of course, I've been influenced by so much since then, um, and I add all of that stuff in. But as a foundation, I usually already always start there uh, at the spiritual. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is just uh, it's the music that shaped me, no question.
0: And how did your family feel? How did your dad feel when you started to bra- branch out into other genres? of music was it was it ever a contentious thing or were they just really supportive and happy that you know you were doing your own thing and finding your musical feet
1: No yeah no I got a lot of pushback initially um <laughs> Uh it, it it wasn't all happy and supportive initially. I, I think it was natural for them to feel that I was just like, you know, rebelling and, and uh just just wanting to go away just because I had probably been used to being in church and used to gospel music. Um but I think after a while, like time tends to do, uh, but after a while and they, they realized it wasn't a phase. Uh it wasn't just something I was doing to rebel, but it was actually my calling, you know, and my purpose. And once they started to see the type of music that I did, the way that I presented my music, you know, the, the way it had a standard, even, you know, where they they didn't have to be embarrassed uh, of the <laughs> music that I was putting out. <laughs> Once they realized all that stuff, they that's when they became my biggest supporters. And um, really, they prepared me for the world. You know, I was I was prepared because I had to go through it with my family and proven to them that this is who, who I really was. And this is I had something to say.
0: And also, you know, that you could make a career out of it and be financially stable, because I think a lot of parents worry that that kids are going to chase the music dream and never really make anything or struggle to pay the rent. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, luckily, I, I had parents who understood creativity and understood Um, You know, my dad came from music and came from musicians, so he understood that life. So thankfully, it wasn't that pressure. It was more of um, you're doing secular music, you know, and we're supposed to, you know, you're a preacher's kid and you're, you know, your dad's a pastor. It was more of that pushback. I think, you know, my father had a music career already, so he understood that part. um, But it it was more about what I was going to be singing about that I got pushback from.
0: Uh, okay i read oh. that when you were 15 you wrote a song called don't lose your candlestick which was based on scripture yes. and you got and you got paid for it which uh at 15 I years old pay. getting paid yes. for anything oh <laughs> sweet so oh, sweet my God. but i'm curious yes. about that moment it sunk in and you realized at such a young age such an impressionable age age like Shit, I can get paid for doing this Like this composition thing
1: Yeah, that's literally how it felt I mean, that whole process was Kind of just like right place, right time I would go I uh, Finally, I got my license at 15 They changed the year in, <laughs> in New Orleans That <laughs> year in Louisiana And I got my license And my dad would let me I would use my allowance And go to the studio I just wanted to This is before I knew about Uh, writing songs for people. I didn't know that process. I didn't know how it happened, but I just wanted to hear what it sounded like with me getting these ideas in my head out and recording them. And they were all for my own listening. And I wrote this song. Um, I remember I was punished when I wrote it is why I was reading the Bible because I was punished. So I couldn't do anything (laughs) else. And, um, and, and, and I was reading Revelations and came across that scripture. It was kind of deep for a 15-year-old. Uh, but but um, I let my best friend hear it. I'm like, yo, this is what I did. Look what I did at the studio. And he's like, man, you should let my brother hear this. His brother just had gotten into this group, Men of Standard. And um, I was like, okay, fine. You know, I didn't know what that meant. And they loved it so much that they wanted to record it. And and I'm like, you know, I will do any of this for free. I'm like happy. And then I get a check that was more than a thousand, you know, uh, like, I don't know, $3,000. Then I believe this was more money than I had ever seen, you know, at one time. And like, it just, it just really blew my mind that I could really do what I loved and like sustain myself that it really clicked for me. And I think It allowed me to be really focused from a very young age because it it totally clicked. So I didn't want to do anything else but music from that point on.
0: Did you keep it to yourself or were you running around your high school with a copy of the CD like, Guys, I sold my first record! Yay! Yeah,
1: well, it was less of me trying to tell them. I, I, I mean, I was really not trying to to brag or even celebrate. I was just talking to them, like, yeah, no, I, I, I recorded this song. You know, they, <laughs> these guys recorded my song, and they go so far, they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like you know how <laughs> you know how kids do. They're like, yeah, whatever, man. Like, what does that even mean? You wrote a song for, and I'm like, bro, I, I really did write this song, so I had to bring the a. Uh, I had to bring the uh, the credits, you know, from the CD to show them my name. And then they finally got off my back uh, and they knew I was the real deal at that point. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they didn't believe me at all. It wasn't something it wasn't normal for a 15, 16 year old to, to, to be involved in, you know.
0: Mm. After high school, you left New Orleans and you moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where you attended. Is it Morehouse or Morehouse?
1: Yeah, Morehouse.
0: Morehouse, Mm -hmm. which is a historically black liberal arts college for men. But I want to know, what was the music scene like in the early 2000s as you arrive in Atlanta? Like who's popping on radio and who are the people who are coming up in the scene alongside you?
1: Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, Outkast was fully going. It was more about the labels, I guess, at that point. You had Mm -hmm. LaFace Records, which was Tony Braxton and Outkast and TLC. Um, you had So So Deaf, you know. Um, I don't know, I guess Bow Wow was out at that point, you know, and everything he had done with Escape and all of that stuff. Um, so I just, the, the scene was more popping as far as producers and songwriters. That's what I was excited about, like really getting to see the process. I was making songs, but I didn't really know the the real process, you know, I the mm. only song I had placed was because it was through my best friend. You know, I didn't I didn't I didn't actually go through like the proper channels. Um so I was excited about that. And then so many artists, um like uh I mean there was Indy Irie before me, um uh, you know who kind of set the stage and set the scene, especially the soul scene. Uh but like with yeah Janelle Monet was around with me. Um, so many songwriters and producers. Henny DeBiz was at Morehouse with me. Um, Algebra and Anthony David. These guys were coming up around me, too. Um, it was just an amazing time and, like, really inspiring to be in Atlanta at that time.
0: In my mind, New Orleans is a 100 percent a music town, but it's not necessarily a music business town. What comes to mind when you think about the first time you really understood, like, Yo, these people mean business. I need to learn how to play this side of the game.
1: Yeah, it's so crazy. See, I was I was in my own world. I had these big dreams in New Orleans. Um uh, because you're right, the business wasn't there, but I had Donald Passman's book by then, uh all you need to know about the music business. I had I had read up. I had studied this stuff. Um so I I knew about the business, but I just, you know, a lot of this business is really hands-on it's not something you can read in a book mm-hmm. um so seeing the process once I got there and saw like okay these guys have to turn in tracks every week uh to be sent out to be placed on albums and this is and this guy's doing a publishing deal and it, so it really was the relationships that taught me it was because um, I had I had you know, I had these dreams already. So I was studying as a kid, uh, but really seeing how it worked from day to day and seeing some labels. And now my attorneys getting me to certain labels to have meetings, I'm seeing how these things actually go. And it was just mind blowing to me. I mean, it opened up my world fully. Um, it, it, It just, it just was amazing when I think on that time.
0: Can you remember whose studio was the first studio you stepped into on that Atlanta scene?
1: Oh, yeah. Noontime Studios, um, which now I I would say is a historic place. Um, It was Jazzy Fade there. There was Brian Michael Cox there. uh, Teddy Bishop. um, uh, Donnie Scantz was the guy who I was with, um, who who I was making music with the most. Um, It was just like a sea of creativity. Uh, J.Q. was a songwriter there. Jante Austin was someone who was always writing songs there. Um, These guys have become like some of the biggest and best of all time. Um, And I was just around, just soaking it up.
0: You know, I'm so happy that you mentioned India Ari a few moments ago because it was crazy that the two of you were living in the same apartment building at the time and then you became friends before she released her first record, Acoustic Soul. And I remember that album received like i think it was like 8 grammy nominations but i think she lost to like Alicia Keys but whatever but then you featured on her second album Voyage to India and you gave her a track called Interested and that's how you won your yeah. first two grammys for songwriting and production can can you relive the moment of your first win do you remember how you felt do you remember what you were thinking cuz that's a pretty huge historic moment for any artist,
1: so we're gonna do this song "Interested," which is was on India's second record that I was able to write and produce. We're gonna do that in right. PJ's key. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, the, it it was it was actually over my head. I didn't understand fully what was going on, and ap- after winning my first statue later on in life i realized um i was a part of a grammy award winning album they had changed the rules (laughs) so it was kind of like i won my plaque but i didn't win a statue yet which was a totally different experience later in life but Mm -hmm. um i didn't fully know what was going on i was a part of this album and I, i remember india had lost all those grammys and and we were gearing up we were friends by this second album and it all started to go so fast i mean um, you know, I was like the album is doing great, and then the album was nominated for Grammys and Best R and B Album, which is what I got my first Grammy plaque for, uh, being the songwriter and producer on that. But I didn't. I, I remember I didn't even go to the Grammys yet. Um, so I just was kind of like living (laughs) on the side of it, just experiencing this and, and it opened my whole world up. I mean, then the opportunities change, you know, um, then people start to have different conversations with you. So it was just amazing. But also I have to be honest. Uh, w- such a learning experience as I was going mm-hmm. through it. I was still figuring everything out. This was my first placement, you know? This is my first time getting a song on a mainstream album. So to for it to be Grammy, I didn't know what all of this meant at the time. I was just, just figuring it out.
0: And then after about three and a half years... Uh, You graduate with a degree in marketing from Morehouse and right after you graduate, right after you graduate, you get booked to tour with the queen of soul, Erica Badu, which is an incredible gig. And I need you to tell me what it's like touring with Erica Badu because that's what she does and has been doing with the best of the best. I can imagine that that must have only opened up your eyes even more so.
1: Yeah. I was just on this journey. I mean, it just took me that way. My, one of my close friends became her music director and I was just about to graduate Morehouse. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to come on tour. I'd never been on a tour before, had never been on a tour bus, had never played. Like all of this was new for me.
0: Amazing,
1: And um, and so I jumped straight in and just like was taking it all in. Um a, I had a band uh, freestyle Nation. we had just kind of sp- split up and so I was ready for a, a new experience a new adventure and man, it was like it was like touring under a master, you know like learning from a, a literal master. Um, w- and when I talk about master, I mean controlling the audience. Controlling the music, the dynamics, what's going on. Being she, she, she taught me to focus on lights and what, what you know. She, she has a say in what color the lights are and how they change and when they change. Uh, just like a, tr- just a true master. And um, and uh, I learned so much. I, I'm so grateful that that was my first gig because I decided to start my solo career. Like. Uh, soon after that and I think she was a big inspiration um, for me and just like knowing that I could be an artist.
0: Can you remember a performance that maybe stands out in your mind from that tour with Erica Badu for any particular Um, reason?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, two, two, I'll say one is House of Blues, New Orleans, because it was the very first show of the tour. So I went I was home for the very first show of the tour and everybody I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. My friends are out there like they don't know what's going to happen. So that one stands out. And then Radio <laughs> City Music Hall um, in New York City. Uh, I, I I had always heard of that place, uh, but I'd never uh, had been there or been close, and um, and I remember uh, uh, Badu and I would do uh, "In Love with You" a duet that she did with with, with the Marley um, uh, Marley son. Uh, we would do it together center stage, and I remember it was sold out show at Radio City Music Hall, and I was f- front stage, just me and Badu playing together. Um, it, it was a moment I'll, I'll I'll never forget. It was pretty special for me.
0: When you released Emotions back in 2005, you'd already been making music for so long, right? Did you have labels jumping to sign you? And did you have a marketing degree come in handy when you were getting ready to put out your first release?
1: um yeah I like I'd like that's what I thought text I thought that they were all gonna be knocking down my door <laughs> and uh you know <clears throat> I was a little different at that time I mean the music that was being made I, I, I wasn't quite you know right there doing what was going on and I got a lot of um it, you know the music's too old um I was just, 22, (laughs) but but they were saying the music was too old, um, or uh, you know it was too soulful, um, it was too live, and and so I got a lot of no's. Um, It was I feel like we went to just about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's ridiculous. laughs> yeah, like, is- you know, live instrumentation <laughs> <laughs> instead of like oh programmed God. or something. Yeah, it was crazy. I heard all kinds of things. Uh, but it's it, so so actually more than me just using my marketing degree, I didn't want to. I wanted to be signed to a label like all my heroes were. <laughs> uh, but when I didn't see that there was any other way, uh, I, I I started to turn to my marketing degree And just turn to my business sense altogether and say, all right, well, what does this look like if I if I do it? You know, how do I do it? And that kind of started off just my independent journey. And, um, you know, I mean, we've we've made it here uh, for Grammys independently, you know, so it's worked out. But it it wasn't always what I wanted to do. And and it, it was really the rejection that pushed me into my destiny, you know.
0: A hundred percent. I want to talk a little bit about being an 80s baby, right? I'm an 80s baby. You're an 80s baby. Yeah. Grew up with I Just Called to Say I Love You on the radio. But, you know, from a very early age, you dug much deeper into Stevie Wonder's discography. And, you know, anyone who's ever listened to you can hear his influence in your music. And then in 2013... Yeah. He featured on your second record on one of your compositions called Only One. And he's not singing. He's playing the harmonica, which is obviously, you know, a signature. Mm-hmm. But how did that hookup with Stevie happen? Tell me. Tell me how you got Stevie Wonder on your record. Just tell me everything because I know that there's a story there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I literally shot in the dark. I mean, I, I had signed. That's the only major label album I have. And I said, you know what? Maybe this is the only time I'm going to have this type of muscle behind me. I, I would like to have Stevie Wonder on this song. Like, I hear him on this song. Uh, I said, I don't know how to get to him. So I just started thinking of who I know. And I knew this guy, Teddy Campbell, who used to play drums for him. And I'm like, Teddy, is there any way you could give me to Stevie? I know it's a crazy question and um, he was like, well, his his stylist is actually a big fan of yours. She's from New Orleans oh, wow and um she she's with them like every she's with them like every day. He was like, I'm, I'm gonna get it I'm gonna get it to her." And so her name was April and she um she got it to him. And and apparently he loved it. You know, he sent me a video. I was on tour. She sent me a video of him listening to it. I could tell that he loved it. And um, and for no other reason than the fact that he wanted to, he he put harmonica on it. And um, the rest is history. I mean, that's the very start of our relationship. But like it, it really was just a shot in the dark. And I'm happy I just kind of followed my dreams on that because it was a literal dream um and and it worked out
0: you know the two of you recorded that single from from different parts of the world so at the time you'd actually never met but tell me about meeting stevie wonder in person for the first time after having already recorded a track together where was it what went down did you cry i would have probably cried let me know
1: Yeah. Well, I met him once. I remember Kirk Franklin introduced me to him really quickly before all of this, but he didn't remember that. Um, But then, so after we recorded Only One, I was on a plane and I was going to the bathroom and then I feel a big presence. There was someone in the bathroom, but I feel a big presence behind me waiting for the bathroom and I turn and there's Stevie wonder (laughs) waiting for the bathroom too. (laughs) And I'm like, Stevie, I'm like, Hey man, it's, it's PJ. You just, you just did my song. You did only one. He was like, Oh yeah, man. He was like, I love that song. And you could really sing. And um, I was just uh, I was just overwhelmed. I didn't cry. I-, I had to use the bathroom really bad. So I didn't uh <laughs> I didn't cry. Um, <laughs> it just wouldn't have been the right moment to start crying on the plane, you know. Uh, but, uh, man, but he's definitely given me moments since then. And now we've developed a, an amazing friendship. And um, he's just he's just an amazing he's amazing man outside of the artist we know how amazing of an artist he is
0: mm-hmm. now I'm gonna go on record right and say that I think that Maroon Five's songs about Jane was and forever will be one of the greatest records of the 2000s and you've been the keyboardist mm-hmm. and- I like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've been their keyboardist and and backing vocalist and official member for the last sure twelve, twelve years maybe. But walk me through the process of yeah. of joining a band like that from the first phone call.
1: Um, well it was uh it was really uncertain when I first joined of exactly how long I would be there, you know, what I was gonna be doing exactly. It was more just up in the air. Um, they, uh, I got a call while I was on my, one of my tours and, um, my friend Adam Blackstone, who's a music director was coming in to help them. And they were looking for a keyboard player who could sing. And so he recommended me and, uh, you know, I went out to LA and auditioned and we really, it was immediate. I mean, we started right then the next week were rehearsals. And the the week after that, I, had to do like a live TV special on Fuse. That was 2010, and uh, we just went there for two years. I was just touring, and then um, uh, the the original keyboard player in the band decided to take a break from the band, um, uh, sort of a sabbatical, and that is when my role. That's when you started to actually see me in pictures, and um, you know, be, be an active member. Um, and uh, I mean, it's just been a roller coaster since then. Uh, I always say there's pre-pre moves like Jagger, post moves like Jagger. Uh, <laughs> that that even was such a such a such a switch in the band, and it went from like you know uh, big to 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 massive, and took us all around the world, took us to the Super Bowl, took us to um, all all the stages you can think of, the Oscars, and um, and mm. yeah, it's just been it, it's been a whirlwind.
0: Moves like Jagger is, uh, my drunk karaoke song, A, but also no B, um, <laughs> a friend of mine who now, uh, lives in South Korea, he's teaching English. Um, uh, he's been there for about three and a half years. Whenever I hear that song on radio or anywhere, I have to stop and take a voice note and then send it to him. That's, that's our track. I think a lot of Jägermeisters were oh, had to it. that track. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> nice. But
0: You join just before they drop moves like Jagger. And, and then obviously, like you said, the band explodes on a global level and yeah. takes you to all of these places and you're in full tour mode. But what happens to your band at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, we kind of disband. Again, Like there it was a lot of uncertainty. So... Um, I didn't want to hold my guys up and um, I remember uh, Bruno Mars was opening up for Maroon 5 uh, like wow. a few shows while we were on tour and uh, he started to blow up so quick that he left uh, after three shows of that tour I remember <laughs> and, and, and he asked me if I knew any horn players uh, <laughs> you know like young guys who could dance and I'm like man well my guys aren't working right now cuz i'm here and um and so those are the guys that's his horn players that's been with him as long as i've been in room 5 the hooligans
0: incredible and
1: so it's kind of like cra- it it's crazy <laughs> uh, but that that's kind of like been the 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 journey like you know seeing this and so it was on pause and um uh, but then after a while i started feeling maybe after a few years i started feeling like all right, I want to say something and then that's when I started to pus- pursue the deal with Young Money. Mm-hmm. Um that's the first deal I did uh since w- when I joined the band. And uh and that yeah, that was that was the record I was going for. I had Adam Levine on it, had Stevie Wonder on it, had Buster Rhymes on it. Uh, but that's when I started to kind of figure out that uh, maybe I can do both of these. Mm-hmm. And um after that album release, they even allowed me to do Double duty. So I would open up the tour as as PJ Morton. And then wow. I remember Kelly Clarkson. And then I would close as Maroon 5. And then in Europe, we did the same thing. I opened as PJ um, Robin Thicke and then closed as Maroon 5. So the guys have always been very supportive and kind of allowed me to to be both people.
0: After a little bit of time and finding this comfortable medium between your solo career and being a part of Maroon 5, has it translated at all to Maroon 5 fans? That is a tongue twister. Becoming your fans and vice versa, <laughs> or are the two like quite separate audiences?
1: Um, I think in general, they're they're pretty separate. Um, but... Um, you know the music fans because uh, people are fans for for many reasons mm-hmm. um, but I think the uh a, a lot of the heavy music fans once once they realized I was something different but you know but got a chance to be introduced to me um there has been some some crossover and it's always cool to see fans of maroon five that i that I know show up at my own shows, you know. Um, it's always pretty cool because I don't expect it, you know, uh, you know, you know, that expectation is not there at all. So it's, it's always just super cool when it happens.
0: Mm. I want to talk a little bit about your fourth studio album, which was the first one that you released on your own label, Morton Records, in 2017. And you were nominated for a Grammy Award for Best R&B Album. But what made you decide, right, two weeks before the Grammy Awards, to set a studio date for the weekend of the Grammy Awards to record a live version of that album? Was the studio only available then? or yeah. <laughs>
1: No, no, we just did we, we I had an idea to do a live album and I kept switching the dates of like, okay, now we'll do it in the summer or we'll do it. And I'm like, you know, we we may never get this momentum again, you know, being being nominated for a Grammy, um makes people pay attention to you for that. And until, until you lose, you know, <laughs> it's like, you got a window. You, you got a window right there where people care to talk to you and they're and you're in headlines and you're mentioned with the greats. And I kind of knew deep down that I wasn't going to beat Bruno Mars, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, how can we maximize on this momentum? I was like, man, the shows have been killing on this tour. I, I, I would love for people to see what that, has been like and i was like let's just do it at the grammys while people still care you know and then we have we'll have an album to release where i can tour again when win or lose i'll be able to tour you know and um so let's record it then and it was that simple in my mind and i really never expected for the live album to take off as much as the original even mm-hmm. more um but that's what happened and you can never plan those things i had one plan in mind this one was way better than than my plan and it and it allowed us to tour for a, a year or two more um just based on the live album
0: i know i think that it's absolutely incredible that gumbo unplugged then went on to win a grammy the next year so <laughs> which is which is crazy and you know we touched earlier on the you know you've won four grammys and all of the success that you've achieved but doing it as an independent artist right and winning a grammy as an independent artist that must be the cherry on top though that must be so sweet knowing that you know yeah i did it by myself but also i'm surrounded by good people
1: yeah. No, that's the uh, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. Um I'm hoping that I'm showing another generation that that will come behind me that it doesn't mean less to be independent anymore. It doesn't mean that people won't recognize you. Um you can do the work and get there and and um I just hope that I'm an inspiration because these types of things were just seen you know seemingly impossible. Um, it was seemingly like this is a major label thing being at the Grammys and everything. So I just hope that that I'm showing people that it's possible.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on your most recent album, Watch the Sun, uh, I mean, you've got some heavy hitters on that album. Stevie Wonder's back. He makes an appearance. You've you have got Naz on the same track. You've got Jill Scott. You've got Al dubaj uh, who's got an incredible falsetto? I mean, what does it mean to you to be able to assemble so many legends, heroes of yours, to to further bring your music to life the way that you do on this album?
1: Yeah, well, just them saying yes to me um, meant so much, and it, and it and really said something to me. And it's something I've always wanted in this industry more than sales, more than success. I wanted respect. And um, I think for them to take their time and for them to uh, think of my music is worthy of, you know, uh, lending their voices and their time. It just showed me that that I'm respected and that that means so much to me. Um, And and they all were just perfect for these songs. I mean, it just made so much sense for these songs that it it really like put the whole puzzle together for me. And uh, it means so much to me. Uh, I mean, it's like a dream come true.
0: I must tell you that this album is incredibly special. Uh, I think you've done a spectacular job with Thank it. Uh, what do you hope that the people who listen to it get out of this album, take away from this album, if anything?
1: Um, well, you know, I, I try to be an example. So I hope um, f- for anybody it, it allows them to be vulnerable and, and feeling and And love and life, uh, you know, giving themselves some some grace. Um, And then to creatives, I hope it encourages them to be brave and honest, you know, like really say something like if you're going to if you're going to present something really, really, really pick something that that means something and that can connect to people um, in, in a real way. Um, the more honest we are in the art, I think the more the further we get. So um, those two things, I think, are, are the main things. Aside from it being great music, I'm so proud of the music. I'm so proud of the every single song on this album. Um, but deeper than that, I want people to take those those messages from it.
0: Well, PJ, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me on Text Talks today. You're a crucial voice and figure on our scene today. And I really, really hope that we get to see you and hear you and experience this album for ourselves in South Africa very, very soon. I know you oh, have a wait. huge dedicated fan base, Danya, that are chomping at the bit to see you live.
1: Uh, the, the feeling is mutual I cannot wait to get there I was itching I was itching man I cannot wait to get there and I feel like we're gonna have a lot of years together we just gotta get it going we just gotta get it started so I can't wait あ。<音楽>
0: for another episode of text talks a huge shout out to tom's the only music store for always having our backs technically remember to follow text talks on all socials and subscribe and rate on whatever platforms you stream your podcasts on head on over to textalks.com for all our previous episodes and remember that's text with a double x from me your host text producers jonathan ings and matthew lewitz and research and associate producer al klapper catch you on the flip side